welcome or welcome back to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I'm Megan. <laughs> and I'm Elo. And today we'll be speaking about Ever After, the film. Yes, the 1998 Fox 21 picture featuring or starring, however you want to say it, Drew Barrymore and DuGray Scott. I think yeah. that's how you pronounce his name. And I always want to call him something different. I don't know why that name for me is hard. Yeah. And then it's also got Angelica Houston, who gives us some really great sassy facial expressions. Yeah, I think she's my favorite. She's the wicked wicked stepmother, right? Yes. Yeah. And then we've also got a Melanie Linsky. For those of you who ever watched like Two and a Half Men and stuff, this is from before. She kind of broke out, but very familiar. Childhood film. Elo had never seen it. Yeah. So it was the first time for me. And when we were anticipating our podcast episode with Sarah F. Decker, you know, she asked us for a list of potential topics. And this was one that I, I mean, I grew up with this film. I used to watch it all the time as a child. And she had yet to do an episode on this. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this one, this one, this one. Unfortunately, she She had- She just recorded one now. Yeah. And I think that she released it a week or two ago. I haven't listened Uh, to it. I didn't want it to like- yeah, you don't want to okay. skew your own opinions. But uh, ever since, I was like, Ella, we, ha- we have to. We have to. Yeah. I mean, it was a very interesting film. I definitely had, like, there will be comments. <laughs> but it was yeah. very fun. Like, it was a fun thing to watch with, like, a medieval, modern medieval lens. Yeah, definitely. And for me, it was interesting because since I grew up with it, you know, so it has that nostalgic, intimate spot in my mm. heart. And I haven't seen it. I mean, probably in a decade until I rewatched it yesterday. So it was that interesting kind of feedback of, oh, yeah, that's what happens. Oh, yeah, that's what happens. So it was familiar. But also looking at it with this lens. Yeah, it was really, really interesting. And so, yeah, comments. Ella, why don't you start us off just kind of on, uh, I guess. The story. Put out to you. Yeah, or general. However. So okay, so one thing I really want to know is <laughs> the British accents. Now mm-hmm. I find that kind of an interesting choice to base it off like this land in France where they have this perfect British accents kind of kind of a surreal setting. I think it had a lot. I think what you were saying, we were speaking about this previously as well. And it, one thing that's particularly interesting is that it does have this, like, trying to set it into a realistic um, historical moment. Mm -hmm. And so you've got the first moment, the narration moment, um, at the beginning in the 17th century, and then you go into the 14th century with um, a character such as Leonardo da Vinci, which is kind of wild. Um, It's a very, I found it a very compelling film. Um, it was a it definitely felt very feminist especially for the time mm-hmm. and I liked the feeling of how lit- literature had a real big role in it so like mm-hmm. the narration was important and reading and knowledge is important and like reading and knowledge as a tool for liberation I thought that was very interesting as well yeah um quick just little like correction, not to be nitpicky, but I think it'll be really important for our discussion. Uh, the narration scene takes place in the um, 
18th century because it's post-French Revolution. Oh, shoot. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. And then, well, and then the the story aspect, like the actual story is 16th century. It's the beginning mm. of the 16th century. Um, yeah. So like 1500, 1503 to like 1520, give or take. Mm. I have comments on that because they really kind of have some conflicting, it's a fictional story, but they have real figures that yeah. don't quite line up. Mm. But yeah. um, I do think that's an, important because it's in the media it's like a renaissance story but it's imagery is much more medieval yeah but it's in that time that's in between yeah well actually yeah yeah. (laughs) well correction then sorry I just um because I actually thought that it was taking place much earlier yeah and it's not it's right at that transition moment yeah Um, yeah yeah so one thing I found really interesting was when I did my undergrad, um, Charles Perrault is someone that I'd studied. So that was a very cool um, mm-hmm. moment because Charles Perrault is kind of like the Grimm's brothers for French literature. And so he wrote Cinderella and things like that. And so you got to read like children's books, but like with these terrible endings. Um, right. And so that thought that was really interesting and we looked at it through like a psychological lens and things of that kind of and that kind of like and so I thought it was really interesting to put that in the midst of this story um yeah, that aimed to be so different one also so with this being a film that I'm watching with as an adult I guess knowing that it was the Grimm brothers in the beginning but never really like registering that mm. uh and then like with the brief mention of yep yeah, uh, Perot and everything and just like oh these are the Grimm brothers these are like the fairy tales the Germanic fairy tales and just kind of yeah. I mean they are the beginning of if you will medievalism yeah. uh, the way that we kind of think of it today and like the nostalgic medieval past is like a different mm-hmm. time and Perot is the one that really is like it's also magical and he, I think he's the one that introduced kind of the uh, supernatural elements am I correct in that to this um, tale? I or- think so some of them I don't really like it's been a while since I read it there was definitely a lot we like looking at it through the psychological lens there was a lot of like you know the however we'd read the sort of like fairy tales and all of that mm-hmm. um even rewatching this with some of its flaws fucking love this film and I definitely it is the best Cinderella telling I haven't seen the new Disney Cinderella don't care this is the best I don't know I really like the book so <laughs> I mean I've never heard the the story or the book but uh so I think one thing like I think the film does a really good job in a lot of things and I think that my favorite part is definitely like the idea that knowledge is cool and mm-hmm. reading is cool and that you know she was the coolest because she's read Utopia by Thomas Mann and you know she's also you know a lot of what reading was what like reading was aimed to women because they were sat at home Mm -hmm. that's why novels were developed um that was the audience that they were looking for and so the fact that she read but also Mm -hmm. was like very actively involved in the upkeep of the house and everything I thought that was a very cool contrast and also like a very modern contrast right I mean this film is part of the 90s feminist wave yeah and I mean, Drew Barrymore is also kind of enmeshed in that. If also you look at, I mean, she was in Scream two years prior, you know, the okay. opening scene. Um, but yeah, so this bit where 
rather than being kind of meek and modest and yeah. quiet, there's lots of play with like her speaking and her words and the scene where they're with the gypsies and she's like, sorry, I've let my mouth run off again because she's philosophizing and everything. And then uh, Prince Henry goes, but it's your mouth that I am entranced by or something oh. like that. You know, it's like a double entendre. <laughs> and where it's like he's interested by her ideas because that is initially what kind of captivated him when she dresses up as the courtier slash uh, comtesse to rescue Maurice. Yeah. Uh, and she quotes Utopia, Moore's Utopia to Henry. And he's like, not many women, you know, could just quote Thomas More to me and blah, blah, blah. Um, and one thing that I find, so this is kind of like the historic nitpicking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the film, we get the intro, the initial frame in late 19th century, late 18th. 18th century, apologies. And then we are young Danielle. So when she's eight and her dad comes home, introduced yeah. to the new Baroness and sisters. So he um, gifts her Thomas More's Utopia. Mm-hmm. And this is supposed to be in around like 1503, 15, so based on how the film frames it. But uh, Thomas More's book, Utopia, was first published in 1516. Yeah. And then, you know, the rest of the film is 10 years later. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting, especially because Leonardo da Vinci dies in 1519. So that three-year gap in between. So that's kind of one of the historic kind of anachronisms yeah anachronisms are but I didn't really realize that until afterwards I felt like there was something but as a casual watcher I really do appreciate the I feel like the whole timeline thing it Mm -hmm. kind of as it was I think they got away with it because it was kind of like a fairy tale film anyway so time was kind of at play in a different way it was yeah, like a suspension of mm. disbelief, really. Yeah. Maybe that was kind of the magicalness about it. We're like, okay, well, he died. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right. One, you know, this film doesn't have any arguably supernatural aspects. There's no fairy godmother. There's no talking mice or yeah. you know, birds dressing her. But Leonardo da Vinci kind of functions as the quirky guide for her yeah. which I actually really liked even though you know you're like oh well you're getting rid of a woman for the men but he is the kind of quote-unquote enlightened figure and is just so yeah he's really good hearing and yeah. I mean at the end spoil also spoiler for people oh, that wasn't sorry. clear we are spoiler everything <laughs> but you know she shows up at the ball and she's dressed as an angel and kind of everything <laughs> following that you're laughing I mean, it is a so 90s with the glitter on her face. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I watched it at age 25. I feel like I'd watch at age eight, completely different experience. Uh, and he's like, I gotta give you wings. And it's like cheesy, but I'm just like, hell yeah. And he's running through and I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm all there for it. And the look on uh, yeah. Rodmilla and Marguerite's face, that's the evil stepmom and the sister. I'm just there for it. And the yeah. way that it kind of builds the tension for when she runs away and loses the slipper, mm. I just, I felt like it's so heartbreaking because he's such a bastard to her in that moment, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean- but, but like you know, it's probably realistic. Like understand that, that moment in time, that kind of behavior probably would have happened. Yeah, and for those of you that are like, 
well, she should have told him and da, da, da. I hate movies where it's like, someone's going to say something and then someone else is like pontificates and is like, I love you so much. And blah, 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 you know, and she's like weeping and wants to tell him. I do also feel like that's a bit out of character. Like, I think she still would have said something based on how fiery she was leading up. I know she's emotionally distraught, but this is really me super nitpicking. I still think yeah. that was beautiful and like perfect as it is, but. <laughs> I, I think actually what was really interesting to me is that there were a lot of like ailments that, or elements that mm-hmm. you would have like historically probably did happen. They weren't expressed the way that we would express them now, but I'm thinking about, you know, the wicked set mother. Mm-hmm. She's wicked. I mean, but she's not, she's not as horrible and cruel as she is in the, in the, in the fairy tale. She's a human being. And there's that kind of human relationship that's very contrived and difficult and all of that. Yeah, they do humanize her a bit. Like there's the one scene where uh, Danielle asks her, did you love my father? And you can you can see Angelica Houston's face when she, when she says, well, I didn't know him that long, but you can tell she did. And yeah. that's where all her hatred of Danielle comes from because yeah. the uh, Baron, Danielle's father, when he passed away, when he died from the heart attack, you know, he looks at Danielle and he says, I love you to her, not to the Baroness. Which also, though, really petty of the Baroness. I get that, like, pain of you want, you want to be you. That's his daughter, you know, yeah. kind of thing, and he's dying. But I don't know. I also find the Baroness, I mean, Angelica Houston, home run, grand slam, out of the park, awesome, all the accolades, fucking just, I think she's brilliant at this. Yeah. But she's such a bitch. But, she's, like, that is the role, uh, right? It is part of right. the thing where she's not supposed to be nice because otherwise there wouldn't be such a big tension between them. No, I know. But she's... I mean, that, that is what, like, well, you have right. to hate her. That's the point of I know. her. Um, and there are moments where you're like, oh, will she crack? Will she crack? And then she doesn't. Whereas Marguerite is just a fucking cow. As Daniel calls her that one time. I Her, like, oh, so good. when she... The moment she punches Marguerite when she's where it wants to wear the dress is still a moment where you're just like, yes, yes. Do it again. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so looking through my notes, there's one yes. thing I'd like to talk about. And I don't know if you Do know it. this, but um, so, you know, at one point, at the first part of the beginning, they have um, a falakok, which, how is it called in, in English? Um, like eggs where you like they're not they're soft yeah. soft boiled eggs yeah soft boiled eggs and they had bread that had risen mm-hmm. and salt I was just thinking you know salt's a thing that's always kind of been in some areas you had it in others you didn't and it was always a bit of a source of contention and mm-hmm. there were wars because of it and things like that and like you know when did they start actually <laughs> rising like making bread rise and things like that and so I kind of thought that maybe that could be really anachronistic but then again I don't know yeah I mean I the bread rising I feel that's not anachronistic Mm. the salt thing I'm not sure it could be a status bit where you know like sugar was something that was for the elite and we know that the baroness is bankrupting the uh yeah the estate to have these like elegant 
nice thing. So that's always kind of how I read the salt. I could be wrong though. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was just, I thought it'd be interesting to bring it up because it might be a detail that you don't really notice the first time right. you watch it. Um, I was going to have a comment in response to that. And I just, it, looked, I, it went out of my, oh, the chocolate. When the prince is like, well, yeah, yeah, have yeah, you ever yeah. had chocolate? And you know, you want to create yeah, Spanish and you're like, oh, it's not Spanish though. That's a sign of colonialism. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think that's also like, yeah, intentional. He could have said it's Spanish and comes from the the New World, the Americas, but yeah. Spain was were the ones that brought chocolate over from yeah. Central and South America. But uh, uh, when she like shuts her eyes and opens her mouth, and his face is like, uh, okay, <laughs> so like my body hurts. Um, I also thought it was really interesting how they were trying to send people to the Americas that they didn't like. <laughs> that was a very funny thing. I mean, they did do that in France and Spain. I mean, France, that's how New Orleans was established, was they sent the worst convicts over. And it was kind of like, you know, Australia, convict colony. And they were like, yep, you get this swamp. Uh, This is around, well, actually, this is, New Orleans was established in 1716. So this actually predates that by about 200 years. So I guess my timelines are getting confused. But yeah, it is funny. So one thing I want to like bring up in my, oh, actually two things really quick. Another timeline anachronism, but like you have to look it up. I feel to know it like I I did. So, you know, when the prince finds out he's talking to Leonardo da Vinci after he quite early on in the film and da Vinci says, Michelangelo is trapped under a ceiling in Rome. I'm just the second choice. That's so, just probably not right time-wise, right? Yeah. So this is, you know, a reference to Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. Like, yeah. And that occurred in the years between 1508 and 1512. So it is, again, kind of like a thing because oh, I don't recall when, but Leonardo da Vinci did go to a court, but I don't remember exactly when. But this is like another timeline thing where you're like, what year are we in? But it mm. still works because they're close enough. And unless yeah. you're like a true historian, it like I appreciate the attempts to use things that we're familiar with to create mm. a sense of a past where this did occur. At least they're like five years apart rather than, you know, you're like, mm, that was 75 years before. Well, I think they were trying to kind of give a feel of the century, right? Rather exactly. than time. And yeah. it's kind of going, because obviously the the audience that they were trying to attract were Mm -hmm. little and therefore it's a good way to introduce history no exactly um and so I like I even though it's wrong I appreciate it and enjoy it because of that yeah my art historical eye was very proud of itself because when I saw the painting right at the beginning you know not knowing who was going to be in it I was like oh that's old masters that's um could be Leonardo could be and I was just like trying to figure out I was like I think it's Leonardo and I was like yes (laughs) (laughs) right um and then another thing so this isn't art but this is um a fact that I've gotten based off of the IMDB trivia Mm. so again could be wrong you and your IMDB trivia things I find them really always very interesting and then you know I could have googled it but I have other things on my mind due to like family stuff so audience sorry you could email yeah. us or message us and be like, you're just wrong. Yeah, but, you know, also like we kind of, you know, we might be doing this on purpose and saying things wrong so that you can't catch it and tell it. us yeah. and tell us that we're wrong. <laughs> but so this is like 
I'm going to just read what it says. Mm -hmm. So in the movie, Danielle rescues the prince from gypsies by carrying him on her back, which is funny, you know, it's like really just good. According to legend, when King Conrad III defeated the Duke of Welf in the year 1140 and placed Weisenberg under siege, the wives of the besieged castle negotiated a surrender which granted them the right to leave with whatever they could carry on their shoulders. The king allowed them that much. Leaving everything else aside, each woman took her own husband on her shoulders and carried him out. When the king's people saw what was happening, Many of them said that that was not what had been meant and wanted to put a stop to it. But the king laughed and accepted the women's clever trick. A king, he said, should always stand by his word. So I don't know if that was like intentional, like the writers, I doubt it, but kind of fun when a clever moment in a film syncs up with a certain kind of legend in a way that is empowering. Also in a very um, modern 2020 lens women being strong is cool Mm -hmm. and that kind of way of being like oh she's so strong she can carry a man who probably weighs more than her yeah it's also very cool because it makes you think like she's kind of like the heroine that any young person could aspire to be right she's Mm -hmm. smart she's well read she's courageous she's nice she's blah 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 and so she's also strong and that's quite a good attribute to put in the midst of the things that she is yeah when I also think that you know because she's forced to act as a a servant in her own household you know she does the everyday chores right she picks the apples gardens etc and I think it just kind of also shows that those people are strong not just emotionally you know having to go through all this but physically and that like that she is capable of this and therefore also you know her um friend servant friend kind of like motherly figures are probably also equivalently as strong even though they don't seem like it and in this scene too when she's walking him away and before the you know gypsy king starts laughing uh, prince henry is just kind of goes well (laughs) on her back like he just kind of accepts it he's not upset about it you know he's just like well she outsmarted you. And I think that was just great because it is also further yeah. um, a character building moment for both of them. Yeah, agreed. And agreed. I just enjoy that a lot. Yeah. Um, let's see. Any other like notes or thoughts uh, for the film? I've really yeah. found the sentence. Divorce is only something they do in England really funny. It's funny, but again, out of time, history-wise. Yeah. Because King Henry VIII doesn't divorce uh, Catherine or annul the marriage of Catherine of Aragon until 1533. Yeah, and the reference to building universities also anachronistic because I think the Sorbonne was created in the 15th century and they're based in France. And obviously Oxford and Cambridge were built late 14th, I think. Well, I don't think they were saying he's making the first university. I think it's, he just wants to establish one. Yeah. So I thought it was very, I feel like otherwise they might have referenced that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, another one. Oh, this is something that I wanted to mention because it kind of aligns with my research. Oh, yeah. So when Rodmilla, the stepmother, receives the invitation to the masquerade ball, that ball takes place on the feast of St. Jude. 
So mm-hmm. that means that the ball is on October 28th because that is St. Jude's feast day. And so St. Jude, for those of you who don't know, is Jude the Apostle, who is also sometimes considered to be potentially the brother of James, the son of James, or even the brother of Jesus. Mm. And I just thought that was an interesting little, you know, tidbit because I was like, oh, St. Jude, like they're not, they don't give a date. They give Mm. a saint's day. And that's actually how like certain time was because Mm. people didn't really necessarily know dates. Their calendar at this time went by saints days, feast days, festivals, et cetera. Yeah. So the, the apprentice's name also mm-hmm. Danielle's friend was called Gustav, which is quite Gustav. funny. Yeah. And I quite liked him as a character. I thought their friendship was very like well written and well wholesome. Wholesome, exactly. The other thing I wanted to talk about was tennis. The scene where they play tennis, I oh. thought that was to die for. I thought it was really funny. Like the whole like we've been cooing and doing that and I also wondered I mean wondered a bit about when tennis started and things like that is this just a sport that I'd never think about because it's not a sport I enjoyed watching or reading or playing or you know anything like that right yeah I mean same I never uh played or tennis is one of the few sports that I can't play think... and oh, just okay. well I can play it I'm just really really bad at it yeah, uh, chasing a ball is not my thing, is it? <laughs> I usually hit the ball over the like over the actual fence on accident. Oh. My dad loves tennis and tried to teach oh, me, oh, and okay. um, yeah, that did not go well. So I just googled it, mm-hmm. and I think it's probably there. We're looking at like a historic derivative of um, tennis, like the prior to that, because according to Wikipedia, it was first played in the 19th century. Mm. So it, I'm assuming that that. And that may be lawn tennis, which is what we now play. Mm. Um, I'm assuming that's going to be maybe like a racquetball sort of thing. That was really funny. But yeah, no, I mean, it was funny. But now I'm very curious. Um, Gustav, right? The friend. I was like, he looks so familiar. Yeah. So familiar. And uh, he plays Stan Shunpike in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So in Harry Harry Potter. Jesus. On the night bus. And the guy that's like taking the tickets and he, you know, Harry tries to get on and falls over or he's falling on over when the bus comes because it frightens him. And Stan goes, what you fell over for? The only reason I know that is because I say that to Bowie all the time because he just kind of <laughs> flops down. Oh, it's the same person though. I remember like Googling it. I was watching the movie and I was like, ah, it is the same person. That's so funny. <laughs> he's just much younger because, you know, that's like Must eight years or so in between. Yeah. A random, you know, fun yep. fact connection thing. Um, one scene I one final scene I would really like to talk about is um the marriage scene between the princess of Spain and oh yeah, oh my Prince god. Henry. That was I swear to God, that was so funny. Uh, like her crying is just <laughs> so over the top and you're just it just keeps going yeah it's quite awkward but it's like it's so I feel like just the timing of it and everything is so good 
you know, and then he starts laughing. <laughs> and she um, looks at him like, you nasty man. Well, and then I love that the man she loves, and it's meant to be comedic, but I find it heartwarming, is like, he's just balding oh, and, you know, and sweaty, and they're just like so happy to be together. And you're like, oh. And then the parents in the background are having a like, real fit, like, oh, it's your fault. No, it's your yeah. fault. I find that really funny too. Whereas, yeah, uh, King Henry's parents are, you know, very much like, wow, they have problems. We're fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just, I love that scene. And I remember that one as if like, as a child, it's oh, not okay. forgettable. I feel, you know, just yeah. over the top intense. Um, I think I'm good to go if you are. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, I mean, there is honestly so much more yeah, about yeah, this film yeah, yeah. we could talk about and maybe we'll revisit it someday, yeah. but this was a first impressions episode. If you want us to do another angle, please let us know. We're happy to do one. Yeah, this just was really meant as a way for us to fill in. You know, we took a break because we saw each other in person. Yeah, last it was week. really nice. Except it was so cold and rainy. I don't know how we did that. It was yeah, impressive. We got drenched and like it, the weather was horrible. But we saw one another and that was great. Yeah. And we also just wanted to break up the time a little bit because we are planning on taking around a three-week hiatus due to uh, personal circumstances um, for both of us we have things yeah. going on if that changes you know you can check we'll our social media know. but yeah we are currently planning on coming back in mid-June yeah and if you have in this time if you think of things that you'd like us to talk about record things to include any of that then please let us know because we're always happy to receive emails from you guys or yes. messages or anything yes definitely take this time not as you know us just going dark but as an opportunity to reach out yeah exactly if you like this episode and like to listen to more please know that you can find us on spotify apple podcast youtube amazon audible all of those things just type modern medieval podcast we're also on social media where you can interact with us we're on facebook where we've got a group and a page type modern medieval podcast we are on instagram podcast.modern.medieval that's our handle and we are also reachable via email just type modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com yes and then finally you can find us on twitter under the handle at medieval underscore modern and our music, our intro and outro music is by Joe Burton, who goes under the name Trothgard. And you can find uh, his music on Bandcamp. Just type in the name Trothgard. Until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ella. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. Ooh, 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 ooh.